Well, it is fun to talk about our dads, and we wanted to show a video. There's also dad fail compilation videos as well, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, but it's neat to be able to talk about dads, and this morning I want to start and just kind of open up and tell you a little bit about my grandfather. Um, my grandfather's name is Charles, Claude Charles Wilson, and uh, he had an eighth grade education, and uh, he lived in Delavan, New York, and in Delavan, New York is uh, only about a mile away from where in the early 1700s, Jacob Wilson uh, put down roots. And my grandfather, we had only moved about a mile away in almost 200 years. And that was where he was born and he thrived. And in many ways, uh, my grandfather literally did walk uphill both ways to school every day. The, on the other side of the little valley, there's a river at the bottom, and he would walk to school on the other side. So he walked downhill first, and then uphill in the snow every day to school, and then came back. And my understanding, the way the story goes, was that he was there uh, through seventh grade in his first day of school in eighth grade. Uh, he walked down that hill up the other side, went to school, and decided... I don't need to go to school anymore. And so he walked back and never crossed that, that thing again to go to school. Uh, he just said he didn't need it. And in that time, in that place, he lived on a farm and he did his work and did his job. And uh, that was it. That was as far as he ever got. Uh, but he was a godly man, a quiet, godly man. He died in 1998. So this is coming up 20 years uh, this year. And I got to know him as just my grandfather. And uh, he's well respected in that community. Uh, I can still go into many businesses in the community that are farm-related and say something about my grandfather, drop my grandfather's name 20 years later, and they know exactly who I am, where I'm coming from, that type of thing, uh, because of who he was. And in many ways, I loved to walk in my grandfather's footsteps. Uh, but there's, like, literally I love to walk in his footsteps because he had this really weird right foot, and I don't know if it was from... I don't know if it's from an accident on the farm or whatever it was, but he would kind of drag his right foot a little bit. And so I would walk in the snow behind my grandfather, and my little feet would fit inside of his giant feet footprint. And so I would kind of walk behind him in a similar pattern and just follow him everywhere that he went. Now, many of you see on, on television, there's these commercials for something called a power scooter. Are you familiar with the power scooter, right? The whole idea of the power scooter is when you get older and you get up in age and you're not going to be able to move around as easily as you used to be, the power scooter is going to help you to be able to do all the things that you love to do. And it shows the, the grandparent at the kid's soccer game and they power scooter their way along the soccer game or uh, they're playing at the beach and somehow the power scooter is making its way along the beach. Well, my grandfather didn't have a power scooter. He had... One of these. It's a tractor. And specifically, for those of you who want to know, this is a 116th replica of the exact vehicle that my grandfather decided was going to be his power scooter uh, in his last age of life. I know that because my grandfather was a sucker for going to uh, the farm store and he wanted me to have every piece of child version of equipment that he had in real equipment at the farm. And so I would go and I would bring out, I would look at the things on the shelves and I would tell him, you know, I don't actually have this equipment right now. I can't do my chores until I get uh, this piece of equipment. Like, Grandpa, I got to bring the crops in. I need, you know, I got to gotta take care of it. So he would, this is a two plus two is what this thing is called. Uh, there's two wheels in the front, two wheels in the back. It's pretty 
uh, neat piece of equipment when it came out at the time. And he had the full-size, full-scale version of this. And when he got older, my dad and my uncle, he would come out in the morning, uh, early in the morning. My grandfather always woke up early. It's about 4 o'clock in the morning. And he would sit in a chair next to the house. And my dad and my uncle would drive this tractor up by the chair and help him up into this tractor. And he would drive all over the farm. That was, that was how he spent his last days. He'd drive around, check on things. He wouldn't get out. He would stay up there and tell us what to do from up there. And... Uh, and that was the way he got around the farm. At the farm, though, there was uh, one job that he had that he would, so he would drive this and do his work with it. And then he would have to back it in the barn. The reason why they started picking him up uh, was because this happened so many times. He backed in a trailer into this barn hundreds, thousands of times. Every single day he would do this. And as he got older, my grandfather was a little obese and he got uh, more and more difficult for him to turn his head around to see what was behind him. And so he would drive the tractor and back it into the barn, and he began backing it into the barn over and over and over again. And so my dad, my uncle, uh, they didn't have any say in things, so they couldn't really try to get him to stop doing it. And so over and over and over and over, they would repair but there was permanent changes that were happening to that building. Would you not agree with me? Like, they're no longer nearly as strong as it once was. At, at some point, they rebuilt it so it was twice as strong. And then he took out that pillar when he backed into it the next time. And that, that was what my grandfather would always do. If you've got your notes with you this morning, I'll put this here for safekeeping. That's a good spot for it. Uh, and I was told that some of your kids may try to play with it afterwards. And no, you can't. I play with that and nobody else does, Okay. Just so you know how it is. In your notes this morning, it's a white sheet of paper in your outline. I make this statement to start the day. It says this, practice doesn't make perfect. We wish it all did, but it doesn't. The hope is that practice would make permanent. Practice makes permanent. What essentials should the church family be practicing? So using my grandfather as an example, he day after day, year after year, was backing this tractor into the barn. He had plenty of practice. He had plenty of opportunity to learn how to do it, and all he did was permanently adjust the building. So practice doesn't necessarily make perfect, but practice can make permanent. And so what we're looking at this morning, we're talking about the family of God this morning. As, as fathers, we're here, we highlight you today as, as dads, but there's a lot that happens within the spiritual family of the church that we're talking about this morning. And we need to talk about the essentials that the church should be practicing, not because the church is going to become perfect or because we're going to figure it all out, but we, there are some things that we would like to become permanent. If you've got your Bibles this morning, will you take them out? We're in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll be using the New International Version this morning because that's what's in the pews in front of you. So that black Bible in front of you, the New International Version, if you're using an iPad or something else to get yourself there, um, in, in there this morning. So we want to talk about that this morning. When it comes to the family, when it comes to the church family or the nuclear family, when we, when we talk about that, at the bottom line, at the baseline, everybody wants 
healthy relationships. We all want to be able to interact with each other in a healthy manner. We want this to be a happy place to be. You want your home to be a happy place. But sometimes we assume that that just happens spontaneously, that it just, it makes it easy, that there's, there's nothing to worry about. When I talk about my grandfather, some of the things, yes, he's a simple man, and yes, he, he worked hard and had an honest living and all that, but there were some things that he allowed me to see as the grandson following him around. I watched my grandfather deal with conflict. I remember there was one afternoon, it was chores were happening in the afternoon, they happened about 4.30 in the afternoon, and for whatever reason, he and my uncle were in a fight, because everyone on the farm is family, and so my uncle just hadn't shown up for work that day. And I happened to be with my grandfather. He allowed me to be there with him when the guy finally shows up and watch my grandfather deal with the conflict of the situation. If you're family, you don't usually fire family. You don't throw them out. You got to figure out how to deal with conflict. And so when we talk about relationships, you want healthy relationships, but the reality is you're going to have to work at it. It doesn't spontaneously happen. It's going to take practice. For relationships to flourish, relationships of any sort, we have to realize that we have to understand and fulfill some mutual responsibility in making that relationship work. You see, in the American church, we've got things very confused. We've shifted how we think about church. Uh, Americans often think about church as a business, and you think about the services and products that the church provides, and, and you like these services, and you like these products, just like you like going to Walmart, but then all of a sudden you stop going to Walmart, and you decide that now you're going to go to Target, because you like Target better, because it's red instead of blue, and so you change what church you go to, because the products and services that they offer, although similar, you like the environment differently, and so you look for different products and services. That's not the way that the New Testament talks about the local church. You see, the New Testament talks about the local church not as a business that competes in the religion market, but instead it talks about the local church as a family, a temple of God, his holy dwelling place. So what are the essentials that this church family ought to be practicing? Well, we're going to talk through a different pieces of the puzzle uh, here today uh, as we open up here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 12, and here's your first fill-in for you this morning. He's going to first address, for those who lead. For those who lead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge, or some of your versions will say, to respect those who work hard among you, who care for you, or some of them say, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. For those who lead, we need to look at this verse, and there's some implications here that are being set out for those who lead. This morning we met uh, with, at nine o'clock hour, we met with those who are leading our care corridors. Care corridors here as a church is how we take care of our congregation and our community as well. Those are the elders and the deacons of our church. That is our leadership care corridors. We're taking care of those leaders, and those leaders need to understand, first of all, it's right here in front of us, is to work hard. We need to understand that those who lead need to work hard at leading. There's nothing more frustrating for you in your workplace, for us in the local church, is, is to try to follow a leader who is shirking their responsibility 
and allowing responsibility to fall by the wayside. Or they like to play the blame game and put it on someone else when something goes wrong. Leaders need to know how to work hard. Secondly, it says here, leaders need to care for your people. Or some of your translations do say those who are over you. And so if we put those two ideas together, say those who are over you are supposed to care for you. So in many ways, we could draw an organizational chart here as a church and say, there's the pastor. We've got two, three, six, nine elders. And then we've got a row of deacons and deaconesses. And then we have the congregation. But really, that's not a very biblical model because Jesus taught us to lead as servants. And so instead, even as I illustrate that for you, I should say, here's the pastor. He serves the elder board. And that elder board then serves the deacons and the deaconesses. And from there, they serve the rest of the congregation. You see the difference between the two. By flipping that over, we understand that we are to serve, we are to lead and serve. We care for your people. See, Jesus was the good shepherd. We read in scripture multiple times, he talks about taking care of the sheep. And you may not know a lot about shepherding and sheeping. I don't either. Sheeping, yeah, that's the right word. I grew up on a farm, but we didn't have any of the sheeps. And so, <laughs> if you're working with sheep, you're working with animals, you're working at the zoo, I don't care, you begin to smell like those animals. If you're working with people, if you as a leader here in the church, you ought to start to show some evidence of the fact that you've been with the people that you are leading. If you are leading in your organization at work, you ought to be able to do what you, you need to know the people that you are leading. There's need to be some evidence of the fact that you have been together. You need to care for your people. A pastor or an elder is, tend to, is told to tend to the flock, just like Jesus, the good shepherd, tends to us. Thirdly, it says, and those who admonish you or provide instruction to us. I'll get into this a little bit more here, but leaders, spiritual fathers, and mothers must make course corrections. And there's further detail that is given to us farther here, but this, the reality of this is, as the local church or as human nature, human nature fights against this, this is the ministry that we avoid at all costs, is the providing instruction, correction, bringing back together, pointing towards what God would have us to do. For those who lead, lead by working hard, caring for your people, provide instruction. Second fill in for you, for those who are led, verse 13. For those who are led. Verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. For those who are led, they are to hold the leaders in high Regard, or verse 12 had said there, to respect the leadership of the church. Now, myself, I, I learned this the hard way just recently. Uh, I did a wedding here at the church, but the very first wedding I ever performed uh, was my sister's wedding. I believe it was hers, or maybe it was the second one. And when I signed the marriage document, I signed my name, just like I signed my name on a check or anything like that. It was returned to sender because I had not written Reverend Nathan Milo Wilson in the signature box, they did not accept it as a high enough position, okay? 
I didn't write the word reverend. They said, who's this hack that you got to come and marry you? So they sent it back, and then I had to show my credentials. Yes, I am a reverend. I just didn't know I had to sign that on that specific document. Now, the reason why, why is that term used, that he is the reverend of the church? It is built around this verse. We hold them in high regard, those who lead, the elders, the pastors of the church. We're not talking about a high title here. I think that there's some denominations who get a little carried away with this. If you're familiar, there's some denominations who use the, the word reverend or very reverend or highly extreme <laughs> reverend. Intense reverend of all reverends. It's not about the title. It's about understanding the role that that person or persons are playing in the church. Hold them in high regard. In what? There's a second word. In love. Love your leaders. Love your leaders, church. Encourage. Write an email. Write a handwritten card. Encourage them. Bring a gift. Verbally affirm them. Why? Because they are doing all that they can. I'm not asking for you to write me a letter, Marilyn. You can work on someone's house if you'd like. That would be fine. Those things work well. Why? Why? Because it demonstrates a love for the leader. Father's Day, if you got a letter, a note, a card, something from your kids this morning, it's just special. It allows you to know you're on the right track. Love your leaders. And in loving your leaders, church, asking tough questions in love is part of loving your leaders. Being willing to not, not have a blind eye to everything that that leader does, but being willing to ask a tough question and do so, well, as it says here, highly esteem them, but in love because of the work that they're doing. Love them that way. And then it says here to live in peace with each other. When I think about living in peace with your spiritual leaders, you think highly about them, you think of them well, and you refuse to be critical or to criticize them in a negative tone, a negative atmosphere. I find it rather interesting in, in lots of organizations, it's not just the church, but that we will criticize people when they're not around in situations that isn't proper. When we, when we share stuff we would never share with them, we'll share behind their back. I think that happens specifically in the church because, not because people are intimidated by that leader, but because people know deep down that what they are saying is not honoring to God. They know that in the church this has no place, and so I don't want to be caught doing it. I'm just going to go over here and do that. We're not honoring God when we do those things. And so as we look at this, we live at peace with one another. We love our leaders. We hold them in high regard. What does living at peace with one another mean as, as leaders, as, as a relationship with your leaders? I think at the bottom line, did, can we have fun together? That's what living in peace really comes down to. Uh, Brian was up here, he preached a few weeks ago. He decided it was a good idea to bring out this trophy uh, that he thinks that he's earned uh, for, for this ping pong thing that we've got going back and forth. I'm happy to report to you that since he preached to you here on Sunday, I have six consecutive weeks gotten my butt handed to me again. He's a good ping pong player. Any of you who want to knock him off his throne, that would be fine with me. You ought to be able to have fun with the people that you're around. Uh, you as a church are highly encouraged when your leaders enjoy being together. 
uh, the elder retreat, elder training retreat that we had out at Hickory Hill just a few months ago. Uh, that time that we had was a sweet time. We studied God's word. We dug in deep. What is it that God is teaching and leading the church in? But we also shot bow and arrows. It was a good time. Like we had a good time with those things. It was fun. You enjoy one another's company. Why? Because if you can't enjoy one another in that context with people that you're supposed to be shoulder to shoulder with, the people you are saying, we're on the same track. God is leading us in this way. Then you've got a few things to work on there. And many church families do. And many of your families do. Can you have fun together? Live at peace with one another. For those who are led. Here's your third feeling for you this morning. For those who struggle. For those who struggle. Verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now this morning, the message is just a flyover of these verses because there's like, I think there's 14 different instructions that are given us this morning in these verses. Each one of these just hits one after another. You could have a sermon on each one of these points. But for those who struggle, we need to understand these are the things that we don't like to do as a church. This is the ministry that we avoid at all costs, beginning with this first one, to warn the disruptive. We don't like doing it. I don't like doing it. After you get, if you're the type of person who likes admonishing someone, who likes giving it to them, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Right? There's something unhealthy about that. Why? Because when you love people, you don't come after them with a bat. And in doing so, it's a vital ministry of the body of Christ. We need to understand this practice. It's in spite of our unnatural desire or our natural inclination to not do it. There's triple negative there somewhere. We don't like to do it. But when you think about it, you think, we think through this process, and you say, you know what, there's a, there's a number of excuses why I wouldn't want to engage someone, why I wouldn't want to warn those who are being disruptive. I'll give you a few excuses if you'd like. First one you're thinking is probably, well, isn't that the job of the pastor and the elder? I'll call them up, and they can call them. One of the healthiest things we see in the congregation is when we don't get the phone call. When, when the problem has been addressed and we find out about it of how God has used a godly man or a godly woman in the church to correct a problem that we never even knew about. That is a healthy church. When you as a parent can see your kids have figured out something and now they're moving on with their day, that is, a, that is a satisfying feeling, is it not? Instead of them coming to you with every single thing. Not because that's not the role of the pastor or the role of the elder or the role of the deacon or the role of the deaconess, but because it is healthiest when we say we are each part of the priesthood of believers and God can speak through you and speak through me as well. Here's a second excuse you might get. I'm afraid to do that sort of thing. Well, of course you are, right? It is, it's an uncomfortable spot to be in. But the reason why this isn't written to just uh, the elder, the pastor, is because look at this. At the beginning it says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters. The challenge is to each of us. Yes, you are afraid. Yes, that's fine. Understand that you should be walking in with great respect for someone before you 
give them some critique. But if they are disruptive and idle, it says here, we need to warn them that they are getting off track. You might say, well, why would I correct someone else when I've got my own issues? Okay. What about those issues? <laughs> right? Let's talk about those issues. Hopefully someone is tapping you on the shoulder about those issues or working through those things or the fact that, yes, we're all damaged, but we all take steps. We stumble towards redemption together. We need to be tolerant and loving is one of the greatest sins of our culture today to say, well, I don't want to say anything about them because I don't want them to say anything about me. You understand, we talked about this last week at the beginning of chapter 5 here. The gospel is decisive and divisive. The gospel is clear in the way that we are to live our lives. And when we take it from God's word and be able to say, okay, this is what God is speaking to. This is what the Bible says about this. Not this is what my pastor says about this. This is what our church has decided. Those are, those are dangerous terms to use. When you come back to God's word, that's why we have it up here. Oh, it's not behind me this morning. That's unfortunate. We normally have a Bible there on the thing, but I can point to it and say this is why the Bible is a focus for us. Because God's word is what we come back to each time. And it is divisive. But when we use God's word and we, when we lean in on God's word, then it's not about our own issues. It's about what God is, is showing us through that. Then we make the mistake of this excuse. Well, maybe the problem will just go away. Maybe the problem will just go away. If you own a home and you've had a leaky faucet, a leaky toilet, a leaky roof, right? It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Rini works in our office here, and her son gave her a phone call that said he accidentally lit a paper towel roll on fire. <laughs> he's by himself. He's at home. That's not a problem that just goes away, right? Like, you, oh, that's all right. We'll just leave it there. I'll take care of it when I get home. No way. These are not problems that go away. And truly great men and great women of God cannot be known by their great excuses, right? We need to step forward on these things. We need to warn someone who's out of step. Like a vehicle that's out of alignment, if you've got a tire that's going in the wrong direction, not only, first of all, yeah, it's going to run your tires out, you know, wear your tires out, but at some point that vehicle is dangerous to drive, if something's out of alignment, and that's what happens, that's what's being kind of discussed here. We warn those who are idle and disruptive. Why? Because they're out of alignment, and they're going in a different direction, and it's dangerous for everyone. You need to pull them back into alignment. So we warn the disruptive. Secondly, we encourage the disheartened. We encourage the disheartened. There are people here this morning who are disheartened. They've had a difficult week at work. They've had a difficult week in their marriage. They're, right this morning, the drive here, something happened on the drive here that was, that was a little bit hard to handle, a little bit tough to swallow. It was more than they were ready for today. And they come in disheartened. Are you going to pounce and beat up them? Or are you going to encourage them to what God can do in their lives? That God is faithful and God is secure. And if we, if we put our roots down in the foundation, foundation and the bedrock of who God is and what he stands for and what our lives are when they're rooted on the gospel that today will be a better day. Right? When we don't do that, it's disheartening. 
And those of you who are disheartened this morning, I pray that someone would encourage you today, that you got out of bed and you came, and that God's word would encourage you today. We are to encourage the disheartened because Jesus spent his entire ministry looking for people on the fringes who were disheartened, who had been pushed aside, who had been forgotten about, and he brought them back and he encouraged and said, you're not a waste. You're not time wasted here. You're not useless to me. I think that you could be a part of the kingdom of God. Join me. And that's our role as we encourage those who are disheartened. Then he tells us to be patient with everyone. I can be patient with people I like. I can be patient with all the people that I like. Be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. And then the last verse, 15, says, Be sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. This is a broad stroke that Paul is using here, a broad stroke that just talks about environment, that talks about culture. So we strive to change the culture. Why? Because our culture says that we pay back wrong for wrong. Our culture says we do good to the people who do do good to me. You rub my back, I'll rub your back. That type of thing. That's what our culture says, both within the church, without the church, in your family, in the next door family. All of us are guilty of this. And it says, no, let's think differently. Let's strive to pay more attention to how we behave so that the culture changes. And it is awful hard to kind of put a finger on what is culture but it's an environmental thing. You can walk into a room and get a sense of culture without anyone saying a word. By people's body language, the way that people move, the eye contact that they have with one another, the way that if you see a, a parent with his kids, uh, the way that a dad brings his kids in close. Has he ever done that before? Is he putting on a show because he thinks that you're watching? You know, those, all of those things, like that's all part of trying to define culture. And what, what he is saying here is he's saying make sure that what you're striving for is to go, <coughs> do good for each other and for everyone else, as he's just told you to be patient with everyone. How can we strive to be different than that? Not just paying back wrong for wrong or paying back good for good. But let's, let's try to change that. Let's be a different environment for those who struggle. For those who struggle. Because there are people who struggle. And guess what? I'm one of those people, right? You are one of those people. So that leads us to our next point. We put these together, we see for those who lead, for those who are led, for those who struggle, Christ Jesus bled. For all of us, why do you think that Jesus, or why do you think that Paul is referring to Jesus and what is the will of God here? And why does he talk about that? Because he had enough care for the church that he gave his life for the church. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. (coughs) This is God's will for you. This is what God's plan that is in motion for you when he allowed his son to go to a criminal's cross. He had in mind that you would be doing these three absolutely impossible tasks. To rejoice always. To pray without ceasing. But wait a minute, I want to eat lunch. 
to give thanks in everything is an absolutely impossible task that he was being laid out here in front of us. And he says, the only way that you can have this conversation is through the very will of God and his son, Christ Jesus, that makes it possible. What does it look like for us to rejoice always, to live a joy? We talk about this with our kids, and some reason we don't talk about it to us as the adult. <laughs> of being Happiness is you're happy about your circumstances. I'm happy because I'm sitting in yotality and I've got ice cream in my hand. Like, that makes me happy. But joy is, is different. Joy comes from some other source other than a sugar high or a, a brain freeze, right? The, the joy comes when you're going through something incredibly difficult and yet you still believe and trust that God has your best interests at heart. That's joy. And some of you are going through tremendously difficult things this week. And for me to say rejoice in everything, you're pointing at that situation. There's no way. There's no way I can be happy about what I see happening in front of me. And I absolutely agree with you. You cannot be happy about that. But here we rejoice. There is joy always because of who Christ is. To pray without ceasing, I think this is a dialogue back and forth with the Holy God. You ever thought about the fact that God sees everything that you do? Absolutely everything that you do? Interact with Jesus on that. Talk to him about, hey, hey, do you know what's happening? So, so for instance, I used to work at a camp called Circle C Ranch. It's a Western style camp. I was a wrangler, which means that I worked with the horses, which means that every day I would get up for work and put on my cowboy boots and pull them up over my feet. And I felt like the Wild West, man. It was great. Like two or three summers doing that, and I felt like, you know, I had lived through Lulamore days or something like that. One morning, getting up from my cabin, my job was to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and go out and get all the horses and bring them in and saddle them up, that type of thing. I jumped off of uh, this little boardwalk, because it's a western town scene. So I jumped off the boardwalk and started to run out to the corral, is what we called it. And, and there's, this, there's just a little bit of dew on the grass, and I'm wearing my cowboy boots, and I jump off. And wouldn't you know it, I slide down the hill on my boots, and the next thing I know, I meet a parked car at the bottom of the hill. I slid into the side of the vehicle. It wasn't, um, it wasn't the, uh, the like soft wood paneled side of the vehicle. It was the, the wheel well. I slid into the wheel well, fall down on my back, and look around. Nobody's awake yet. I got away with it. No one saw what just happened. And I feel like it was right in that time, that was that week in my weekly devotions, I'm reading through the Bible and I read this verse, pray without ceasing, interact with God in a, in a way, and God is telling me, I saw that, dummy. <laughs> How many things happen in your life that you and God are the only people that saw it happen? The good, the bad, the, the, the thing that happened this week that you don't want to talk about, you haven't talked about with anyone else, talk to your Heavenly Father about it. He knows what happened. He saw, he, he saw the way that that person interacted with you. That email that came across your inbox that you haven't shared with anyone else, he knows that you read it. Pray without ceasing. Interact with the God of the universe who knows everything. I think you do those things and you begin to understand what it looks like to give thanks in everything. 
but you will fail at all three of these. I will fail at all three of these. Why? Because they are impossible commands. Jesus gave his life for you and for me, and he gave his life so that you and I can have access to the Holy Spirit and his prompting, and so that you and I can find forgiveness and reconciliation at the cross so that we can pursue these things in God's strength, not our own. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything. So there's a statement in your notes this morning. It says this, the local church and its leaders should esteem love for others and live at peace with one another in order to make the gospel of Christ tangible to all. You may be here this morning, it might feel like we're talking about very internal language. We're talking about the church and the way the believers interact with one another. We're talking about the church family. But see, we are told that we are the very body of Christ. And one of the most effective evangelism tools we've got in the toolbox for the local church and for what God is doing in our lives and our hearts is to be a beautiful bride. One of the most damaging things that happens is when the local church, when a congregation like ours, when we begin fighting with each other and beating each other up and we become what looks like to the world a very ugly bride. We've been called to more. We've been called to live the gospel out in a very tangible and real way. We esteem others. We live at peace with one another in order to make the gospel tangible. How do we do that? A couple more fill-ins for you here as we make our way through the last verses. Live free and love truth. Live free and love truth. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19 says this, Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. When I say live free and love truth, it's it's saying we have to, to let the spirit move in our midst. There's always been the joke that you may not realize it, but we are called the frozen chosen. Because we come to our churches and we stand in frozen positions and we think that we are better than other people. But if the spirit is alive and active, don't you think that that should be demonstrated on our face? Don't you think that our worship should be euphoric? Don't you think that our hugs should should be something genuine? Don't you think that our conversations with one another should be deeper than surface level things? Don't you think that the smile ought to be genuine? Don't you think that God's love should emulate everything that we do? The Spirit, do not quench the Spirit. Do not push it aside. The Holy Spirit is alive and active in this place. We don't have to ask Him and welcome Him to be here. He is alive in our hearts. He's moving. Do not quench the spirit. In the summers, occasionally we get the opportunity to light uh, these, these Chinese uh, candles. I think Chinese something. Lanterns. Chinese lanterns. There they go. And they, if you ever watch when you light it and they go up and you do it right at dusk type of thing. And you just watch this thing go up and it moves about and it flows about. And they are gorgeous just to watch. Especially, you know, like the, the movie Tangled. You guys big fans of this? Oh, there was a big fan. I don't know who that was. We got a whoop from the tangled. Okay. Yes. All right. 
So you got all these, like the, the light, it moves around and it's hard to get a feel for it, but it's something just so gorgeous about that. And that's kind of maybe a visual of what the Holy Spirit moving in our midst is like. It kind of draws you in and it kind of pulls you along and you just, it's just such a beautiful thing to be part of. And then it says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. When we say live free and love truth. A prophet in scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, sometimes we get in our minds that a prophet's only job was to tell the future. No, a prophet's job was to pull God's people back to God's word or whatever they had, or the scroll or whatever they had at the time to say, thus saith the Lord. And test it against that. It says don't, don't treat prophecies or prophets with contempt. If, if you feel as though that, that being pulled back to God's word is a promise, oh, that's old-fashioned. No, no, no. That's what that prophet's job is. That's what a prophecy's job is, to pull us back to God's word to say, let's focus here again. Let's fall in love with truth. Let's do both of these things at once. Let's live in freedom, but let's understand that truth is what drives us, you and me. Live free and love truth. Secondly, this is a fill-in for you. Fight to hold on and fight to let go. Fight to hold on and fight to let go. Second half of verse 22 says this, hold on to what is good and reject every type of evil. Let me explain this as the band comes back up. Fighting to hold on and fighting to let go is this balance that we, we don't do very well. What it's teaching us here is to say we're holding on to what is good. We will not let go, no matter what, to what is good, what God's Scripture teaches, what is the truth, the bedrock, the foundation. We hold on to that, and yet we must reject every type of evil. I'm a country boy. I grew up in the country. One of my favorite things to do as a kid was to have a rope swing that went out over the creek. Anyone else grow up with something like that over a pond or over a creek? If you ever take someone out to a rope swing, or your first time you've ever done it, you jump on that rope swing, you're at the top of the bank, and you hold on the rope, and you jump off the rope, and the rope goes down, and you swing out over the water. You have to let go of the rope. Hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of people have done this exercise. They jumped off, they hold on tight to the rope, and they swing out, and then they hold back on the rope, and next thing you know what? You swing back into the bank. And then you fall into the water. Hold on tight. Hold on so tightly to what God has taught us. Hold on to what is good. But let go. Reject. Vomit away would be a very literal translation. Get rid of all the things that are evil. It is going to take a fight it is a battle within our hearts to do that. And the only way that happens is through God's grace, God moving in our lives. If I came up here this morning and shared these things with you and I said, just try harder, just work harder, that would be foolish. It is through His love that we can do so. It is through His empowering us to do so we can do so. But we have to fight. Men, fathers, this is Father's Day. You have to fight to hold on to your family, and then you will have to fight to let them go. Church, leaders here in the church, 
you will need to fight to hold this church together. I will need to fight to hold this church together. Hold on to what is good and yet let go of what is evil and push it away. It's a fight. It's a battle. As our ushers come forward this morning, each week, as a response, we, t- we give you these connection cards. They're in the, in, the, in the pew in front of you. Some of you are in the middle of this battle this morning. This, this battle is going on inside of your hearts, and you cannot figure out how you're supposed to handle this. Some of you need to fight to hold on because you've, you've dismissed truth or you, you've decided that it's not important enough. Others of you need to let go of that sin which so easily besets us. Will you fill something on that connection card this morning? I don't expect that you've, you drew a line in the sand that this, everything is going to change here after this morning. But maybe we can start a dialogue. We can have a conversation. We can challenge you. We can find ways to partner you with a, a mentor who can help you along. Someone older, someone younger, someone to, to really encourage you in what God is doing in your life. Fill that out if you will. Drop it in the offering plate this morning. For some of you, this offering is a time where people bring money to the church and you are holding on to that. And God is telling you to let go of that. That has become a sin. That has become what is evil in your heart because you have grasped a hold of it with all of your might. Give it to God. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we are challenged, those who lead. Lord, we are challenged to lead godly in a godly manner. Lord, those who are here and they're part of the congregation and they don't see themselves as leaders, Lord, but they, they do need to see themselves as part of this family. Lord, and then we, we all are in this fight, in this battle, Lord. I pray that you would give us a victory today in each of our individual lives. Thank you for the way that your word, it pierces our hearts, a sharp sword that divides between the bone and the marrow. Lord, some, some people this morning are being challenged to the very soul. Give them the willingness to step forward, the boldness to respond. In Jesus' name we pray.